Hello and welcome to episode 71 of the Dive Down, a Magic the Gathering podcast for the casual spike focused on the latest decks, trends, and strategies in modern and pioneer. My name is Stanislav here in Chicago, and with me on the line from Denver, Colorado, it's the one and only Shane Beeps. Stanislav, it is, it's a hot one, man. And I, I, I may have, I may have mentioned this in the past, but it's like seven inches from the midday sun out here. I haven't heard you say that in 2020 yet. Well, because it's been chilly. <laughs> now it's warm. It's going to be like in the 80s. You know, you know, how I can tell I'm truly 40 is that the first thing I think about is let's talk about the house. How's, how's the weather out there? How's it doing? How's your, how's your forecast? Yeah. Maybe that's what our other podcast should be. Like we keep flirting with a movie podcast, a pizza podcast. Maybe it should just be weather talk. <laughs> That'll be awesome on a one week delay for editing <laughs> amazing topical content. <laughs> We can workshop it in a bonus episode. Is that Dave Harbarger I hear? The Godfather? It is. It's a tough day today. We're going to have a little little send-off for something that's near and dear to my heart later on in this show. Uh-oh. So uh, I want to observe a moment of silence. Great. We'll do that again later. Did you actually turn your mic off for the moment of silence? <laughs> no. <laughs> On this week's episode, we break down a couple modern challenges. There were two over the weekend, and we look at both of them. Then we'll dive into another installment of Sleeve Believe Heave, featuring our new friends, the Companions. Then hopefully we'll have some time at the end to wind down with a brief send-off to our beloved DCI numbers, 111-267-5445. I'll never forget you. Five three six five six nine. Goodbye. Four one one three nine eight eight seven nine. Don't dox me. But first, some housekeeping. Hello, welcome, and thank you to the newest patrons to join the Dive Down Nation. Shout out this week go to Chris G, Martin W, and Yarkosan. Hello, nice to have some new citizens. Also, big thanks to Robotini One Zing. King Zeke? Yeah, King Zinkeek. <laughs> Not Zinkeek. It's yeah. King Zeke. And Kilgore Trout 503 for their very nice reviews on Apple Podcasts. Also, Maynard, Maynard, Maynard updated their review. I didn't even know that was possible. Did they make it worse or better? They said even in a post-elk world, they still like us. So. Oh, great. Uh, look, I also want to especially shout out Kilgore's uh, parody on the full Cheers theme song intro. So it's like making the way in the world each day takes everything you got. That's that's not what they said, but that's what the song was. So I have to see this. We we should sing this. <laughs> oh wow. <laughs> Let's pull it up. Pull it I up. Think, I think we can harmonize. Hold on. How many people who listen to this podcast have ever even seen Cheers? <laughs> making your way in modern today takes everything, everything you, you got. got. Getting a breakdown on PTQ sure would mean a lot. Wouldn't you like to get a buy? Sometimes you want to go where everybody plays your game. That's not the theme song, is it? That's, that is the theme song. Like, man, I think Stan's just so off tune. No, he's not. 
I'm singing beautifully. Rotating <sighs> formats are so lame. Bum, bum, bum. You want to be where you can see how the meta is going to change. You want to be where everybody, everybody plays, plays your, your game. This is definitely getting cut. <laughs> oh, yeah. 100%. Are you afraid to get sued, Dave? Uh, we do not have the performance rights to that. <laughs> That's parody. It is parody. That's parody act. If Weird Al can do it, so can we. Yeah, that's right. You can find us and two live crew in the Supreme Court writers of the Cheers theme song. I thought I sounded very good. It was Shane who clearly wasn't listening to himself. You know what? I think I wasn't. I think I was listening for a different part of the theme song, so I apologize, Dan. Maybe we can record a version where that's just the new theme to the show. Cameo.com, hire a real musician. We could probably get the singer of, uh, of, of the, the Cheers, Cheers theme, theme song, song on Cameo. So if you want to make us feel good about ourselves without going so far as to write a parody of an 80s sitcom theme song, head over to some kind of podcast rating area, iTunes, wherever you listen. Spotify, I think, has reviews. And uh, tell us what you think. If you'd like to help support us... I don't think we mentioned that you can find the dive down at patreon.com slash the dive down as well. Yeah, I don't think we've ever mentioned that actually. I think we usually do. People have just been Googling us. Yeah. Of course, if you'd like to support the show while playing a bit of magic, especially right now when we're under quarantine, a lot of local game stores are closed, but not forgotten. You can use manatraders.com to rent cards for magic online. With promo code the dive down, you can get 15% off your first three months of a Manatrader subscription. That's manatraders.com. Promo code the dive down. I'm going to keep talking because I wrote the breakdown. It's Stancast. There were two modern challenges this week, and I'm going to talk about both of them in an abridged format. We're going to run through them really quick and pretty much kick off our conversation about companions, which is the focus of the dive today. Assuming there are actually any copies of Companions in any of these top eights. I don't know yet. (laughs) Maybe one. All right. So uh, let's start with the more recent challenge that happened on April 27th, which was won by Oliver Ha playing Grixis Death Shadow. It's Oliver Hart. You you got a line break situation going on there in your spreadsheet. (laughs) Thanks. (laughs) Well, now we got a line break in my deck column. Yeah. (laughs) Well, Oliver Hart, thank you. I mean, I'm sorry. I mean, congratulations for winning the Modern Challenge with Grixis Death Shadow, running three Kroxa. Yeah. And their companion was Luris. Yeah, Luris Luris Death Shadow. Weird. Weird. So there's one, Luris Watch. Weird, I'm going to be talking about that deck later. Not the exact same build, but... Oh, cool. I'm excited to hear what you think. It seems good. Yeah. Second place, KBR3 with Hardened Scales. Ooh, it's back. Featuring Lurus and four copies of the Ozolith, which was a card we talked about on our Picks to Click episode. Absolutely. I'm very excited just to, uh, to test out some Ozolith in even Pioneer Scales. I didn't even see it being picked up in that deck. Well, it's not yet, really. But I want to try it. Cool. Innovate. In third place, we had Coert on Boros Burn featuring Luris. This deck also had Seal of Fire, 
which I think is just really cool. Luris tech seems to be one of the go-to combos with this companion in particular. Two damage every turn. Yeah. You know what else it does? Trigger prowess. No, it kills your opponent's Luris. That's that's also why I think it's good. Cool. Yeah. Mirror, it's, I think it's kind of mirror attack, basically, for the all these Luris uh, mirror games that we're seeing. Interesting. Fourth place, Gerardo94 on Grixis Delver featuring Luris. Also had four Sprite Dragon. Personally, no Mystic Sanctuary in the main deck surprised me. Just because Delver plus Mystic Sanctuary, I feel, is like a really great little synergy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would love for Delver to be good. Again, it's this deck or something close to this deck has definitely been putting up results recently here and there. Um, this is a deck that I considered playing for this week's Leave Believe Heave, and I did not. I opted to play Grixis Death Shadow instead. But um, maybe I'll go back and give us another shot. I thought that maybe it had already gotten out of fashion, but here it is, Gerardo94. Fifth place, Joe True on Niftalite featuring Gigantha. Is it Yagantha? <laughs> is that a soft J? Yagantha makes, I mean, makes, makes plenty of sense in this. I mean, why not? Good card. I have a hard time evaluating Niftalite decks, but... To all the Niv stands, we see you. <laughs> Sixth place, Andrea94. A lot of 94s in the top eight. Yeah, what's embarrassing is they were probably born in 1994. Yeah, I was like, where were you in 94, Stan? I was in kindergarten. Oh, good. Maybe in first grade. I don't remember, actually. I was taking driver's ed. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> Andrea94, sixth place with Boros Burn featuring Luris. Kind of like a stock deck at this point. Week two of this version already feels normal. So are we going to treat companions like guest rappers? You know, it's like Burn featuring Luris. Yeah. Like Stu's Stu's featuring Donald. Like, I think any one of card in your sideboard, if it's a creature, it's your new companion. Interesting. Yeah, so. It, you, so even if it's not the actual companion. Yeah. It's going to be a lot of worm coil engine and thrag tusks. Too, huh? Seventh place, Lapslegion on Devoted Devastation, featuring Luris. Same infinite combo deck as before, but now it's got Mishra's Bobble. Yeah, you have to imagine Lapless John is just sort of ch- champing at the bit here when he can they can play the Devoted Druid deck with tons of recursion in Luris. Just leverage that skill that they developed over months and months and months of playing this deck. Is Bobble just the new Once Upon a Time in this deck? Uh, I mean, it's just a way to get through your deck really quickly. It's like kind of a why not, right? And maybe it's not even that good. Maybe they're just testing it. Hey, guess what? I have lots to say about this in the Sleeve Believe Heave area of this episode. But I will say it's card advantage. It's not card selection is the big thing here. Yes. And it is not free completely. So um, Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. I think it helps you more in the mid-game than the early game, I guess is what I would say. More on that later, perhaps? Eighth place, Sokka93, so a little bit older than the 94 <laughs> crew, <laughs> on a Titan deck featuring Golos, the Tireless Pilgrim, as their companion. It's not a, compa- it's not a legal companion, Stan. What? No. Why would they run this card then? Shane, he just 
He just laid out the rules for what we're calling companions well, now. Well, I understand that, but it doesn't work that way. So I actually don't know what to call this deck because it's not Scapeshift, though it has Valakut. And it's not an amulet deck, but it does run Titan, and it also has Karn. So this is just a deck that can make mana, and it knows how to use it. <laughs> it makes mana, and knows how to I mean, it's probably a Golos combo deck, because you can fetch up Golos with your Karn the Great Creator. So I'm sure there's a Golos combo element. There's the lock element of Karn. Certainly helpful. Because for some reason, Golos is an artifact creature. Why not? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a, it's a robot. Mm. This is just Titan. Right? Titan Karn, but I, I think you're right. It's a, it's a different take on it than we're used to seeing. Cool. We'll just call it the Titan deck. Yeah. Ninth place, this is an honorable mention to Ponza. Albert DK won the ninth place seat with Obosh Ponza. No land destruction in the 75, but mm. six Blood Moon effects between the main deck and the sideboard. Just a ton of creatures in this deck. Yeah, a lot of creatures. Yeah, 30 creatures. Man, I will say Pillage was one of the best turn three plays, and it's interesting to see this them decide they don't need it. Huh. I'd, I'd also like to uh, attract your attention to the 25th place Obosh Ponza deck is another honorable mention, because this one has a lot, a lot going on. It has four Luka. Mm. Coppercoat Outcast in the main deck. Plus one Emrakul, four Goblin Rabblemaster, three Planebound Accomplice, which is a card I will read in a second, and three Oath of Nyssa. Uh, it also has like several even CMC spells in the sideboard, so basically taking off the Obosh plan, maybe post-board, depending on the power of those sideboard cards, because they're playing like Weather the Storm and Collector Oof and... Those are pretty good cards in like regular Ponza. So maybe you don't necessarily need the Obosh in every matchup. All right. So, really quick, what this combo is doing, it's so silly. I want to talk about it because it's a Luca Coppercoat combo. You use Planebound Accomplice, a Modern Horizons card. It's just a three mana, one three that says, pay a red mana, put a Planeswalker card from your hand onto the battlefield, sack it at the beginning of the next end step. And then Luca has this ability that's minus two, exile target creature you control, reveal cards from the top of your library until you reveal a creature card with higher CMC, put that on the battlefield and the rest on the bottom of your library. I think the ceiling here is you cheat out Luca and you cheat out maybe a turn three Emrakul. Wow. <laughs> that is very funny. I would. Hey. Didn't I tell you? Do you remember me saying during the Modern Horizons spoiler episode that I thought Planebound Accomplice eventually would have some kind of weird combo come up? I was up? with you, man. Yeah. Except we thought it would be Sahili or I. I did think it would be Sahili, but also we had a lot of Sahili on the mind then. True. Sahili's always on my mind. So that was a deck by 12 days. Let's look at the, I guess this is the Saturday Modern Challenge on April 26th. Great. Similar, but different. First place, Son of Nothing on Teamer Euroza featuring Yurion, the companion that makes you run a 60-card main deck. 80-card. Thank you, 80-card main deck. Or more. Go big. At least at least 80. <laughs> Why stop there? Uh, so this is an Emery and Urza shenanigan deck, plus Uro and Icefang, because they're maybe the two best blue-green creatures. 
in modern. So this is value, control, value, combo. Got some ETBs. Play magic. Dave is shaking his head in, in disbelief. I just... Uh, Not my Magic the Gathering. I don't ever want to play this deck. Or against it. I just, I can't believe... I mean, with all the things that Companions are doing, the fact that they're making 80-card decks very competitively viable is just, it's the, its blowing my mind. You know what I call that? Upside. Yeah. It's so viable, in fact, that the same-ish deck list is also in second place in this tournament. Yep. Oh, Lord. Yorian Urza Agenza. <laughs> so for people who don't know the, the text of every companion, so what, what is Yorian? Yorian gives you the benefit of exiling any number of other non-land permanents you own and control, return them to the battlefield at the beginning of the next 10 steps. So you get, you get a single ETB of Yorian, and you can blink a whole bunch of stuff that you have, which does what? Like, it can draw a card off your Ice Fang Quaddles. Uh, you get your Uro ETBs. You get your Urza ETBs. That's all, that's all well and good. I mean, Arkham's Astrolabe, sure. Yeah, I think that's a big one. Can you reset your EE? No, you can't. That's a casting cost. So, Can I tell you what else Yorian gives you? Please. It just gives you a Sarah Angel that you can cast whenever you want. Even just a 4-5 flyer in a deck that's kind of controlling. Sure. I've honestly lost to that just because somebody controlled the board, ran me out of cards, and then they cast their companion and just wrote a 4-5 flyer to victory. So the trigger is important, but also... Um, I think that certainty of knowing that you have a finisher in your hand whenever you want for a deck that's supposed to kind of outlast somebody is totally worth it. That makes sense. Yeah, even Abundant Growth. Another one-mana card that draws you a card. So those are the first two places, Son of Nothing and Festifon on Yorion decks. And third place, Black Cat 1922. That's an old Magic player. Yeah, so we we thought we were the experienced ones. <laughs> On Boros Burn with Luris. Got a 92-year-old. 88-year-old? I think it's a 98-year-old, 98? Shane. Yeah, that's what I meant. 98. Let's do some math. Yeah. Let's do some math. In the fourth place deck, four-color control featuring Luris. Only main deck creatures are Ice Fang, Coatl, and Snapcaster Mage. And the rest are like 19 instants and sorceries and Renin Six. Pile of good modern cards. Thanks. <laughs> Fifth place... Amulet Titan, no companion. Featuring uh, Pyroclasm, that's my companion. Maybe their companion is the sixth place Amulet Titan deck. Also had no companion. They're just buds, two of them together. Seventh place, Ponza featuring Obosh. Unlike the previous ninth place deck we mentioned in the last Modern Challenge, this one has no even CMC cards, but it does run four Life Goes On in the sideboard. Which, like, when it's, when I saw that, it was just a little light bulb went off because of all the burn. Seems like a great card to run right now. Mm-hmm. This one, worth mentioning, also does not have pillage. Yeah, no pillage. We're over it. I guess. Eighth place, Boros Burn, featuring Luris. Pretty interesting strategy. Oh, no, it's just Luris Burn. Never mind. <laughs> Shout out to the 11th place Amulet Titan player by the name of Sodak. Never heard of him. It's really weird when like a player 
who runs a single deck and it becomes like so synonymous with who they are as a competitor picks something totally, totally different. Because Sodak is the dredge person and they have nothing to do with Amulet Titan. Another familiar face in 12th place was Spider Space running a teamer, grinding, breach deck featuring Luris. Seems pretty good in that shell. Just bring bring back all your all your permanents. Yeah, it's got four Kinnon in the main deck, plus yeah. places of Goblin Goblin Engineer, Grinding Station, Underworld Breach, and Mox Hamber. This is a deck I'm not smart enough to understand, but I think it involves a lot of clicking. Isn't it weird that the companion decks we've seen so far are essentially just like ultra fair decks where it's like, hey, let's get some additional value off our companions and like the there's so many options for doing some potentially busted stuff with like these breach style decks. Yeah. Yeah. But why complicate things when you can just burn them out? Another honorable mention to the 22nd place finisher, Musasabi playing green, white oops, all combos featuring Zerda. I'm just mentioning it. Cause that's one of the decks I talk about today in the dive down. What are the decks? You got multiple. Well, I, I kind of looked at a couple different iterations of this green, white Zerda deck. Oh, man. I'm hyped. Last but not least, in 23rd place, Merfolk, featuring Luris. Yep. And four main deck Chalice of the Void. Yikes. Which I think seems great against Luris. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Why not? You just gave away all of the leads to my story for my Luris thing. You could put it in Merfolk. You can put it in Burn. You can put it in Jund. You can put it in Shadow. You can put it in Grinding Station combo. Who could have predicted this? Dave, I hope you explain why Orzov Hybrid Mana turned out to be the most splashable color of mana ever. Uh, because it, you can splash any color in Modern, especially when it's hybrid. Oh, okay. Yeah. Fit it in your deck. Doesn't matter. Boy. So it's Dolores World. We're just living in it now, right? Yes. Apparently. I mean, did you did we count how many of these top eights were were Luris decks? Two, three, four, five, six, seven, seven, eight, nine, nine out of uh, nine out of sixteen. Yeah, yeah, more than fifty percent. Seems okay. That's a lower percentage than Luris decks that I faced in the leagues that I've done this week. <laughs> Interesting. I faced seventy percent Luris decks. But who's counting, Dave? Yeah, not me. I I do think it is amazing how many different decks she improves. Like mm-hmm. the fact that she's going in Merfolk and Burn and Grinding Breach. It's like if you have a deck and you want to tighten the screws, just throw four cards in the main that draw you cards and one sideboard slot, and you have a stew going. Yeah, I mean it. It's really shocking. I mean, it, I think everybody knew that the card was going to be available for a lot of people to use and in a lot of uh in this format where everything has constant downward pressure on converted mana costs and it's a large format so you have a lot of options just turns out it's worth it to bend your deck to fit this value engine in it sort of doesn't matter if you have only eight creatures or if you have 22 creatures that you can replay with it uh luris is still worth the time and the effort I do think, though, if Burn gets too popular, specifically, and it does seem like Loris Burn is particularly present in these results, that that's the type of deck that you can just hate out. You know, like, there's so many spells that gain you life that don't have a ton of downside 
if they're in your sideboard. Yeah. Or, you know, can at least be part of your plan. Yeah. And everybody has a plan around for, um, for burn anyway, right? Where it's like whether you're playing Dragon's Claw or maybe you're playing Core Firewalker, or maybe you're playing Collective Brutality. There's there are a lot of cyber cards that people just have against burn. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, but Mike Tyson also said everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face, and that's what burn's doing to you. So, yeah, I gotta admit, I don't think it's that good. I played against it a bunch over the over the week, and I think it's like fine. But I think there's better Luris decks out there. And um, I'm going to talk about it in the dive down. Wow, Dave, saying Dave. burn, not that good. So brave. How many times do you think Dave's just going to lead those breadcrumbs to him talking about Luris in the dive down? It's called a tease in the industry. If you suggest that Delver is better than burn, we'll have a really interesting podcast. I also think it's kind of amazing that Titan stands out as one of these holdout strategies from pre-Companion Modern where it just doesn't need it or maybe doesn't want any companions, maybe both. It seems like from this that it's one of the only tier decks that does not twist itself to get a companion. At least in the results that you shared with us, the Titan decks are the only ones that don't have a companion. I mean, I think part of it is that the deck is such a fine-tuned kind of engine that they're not able to shift their strategy over into fitting one of the any of the companions um things yeah requirements i guess is the word i should have said but (laughs) no the things (laughs) yeah and i i I do think it's really cool that next to luris urion was i think the second most popular companion across these two challenges and i don't think that was the card that i was expecting to maybe be like among the best companions. Yeah. I'm a little bit surprised to see no Zerda stuff, really, because I, I, I was seeing some interesting combo strategies uh, featuring Zerda, but maybe it's just not quite there. Maybe it's more cute than good. But I definitely did see uh, our friend Everett on his stream, Aspiring Spike. He was doing some stuff. Yeah. I think Zerda's time will come, Shane. It's going to come in about an hour when Stan gets to talk about it. I had a bunch of takeaways from these results, but then it turned out that it's all stuff that Dave was going to say during Sleeve Believe Heave, so maybe we can just leave it at that, get people pumped for after the break. Yeah, we're talking about companions this week. Listen in for what we have to say about them. Stan, let me, let me do, let me do the, the, the fade-out music, okay? Making your way in modern today takes everything you've got. And we're back. I really wish we had the cheers like break in music, you know, like when they come back from a commercial break and it's like, bah, 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 bah. <laughs> <laughs> so companions, heard of them? They're new. And they're this class of cards. There's 10 of them, one for each guild, but not really because they're hybrid mana. You got your accountant finally right, Stan. So I thought it was seven. Then Shane's like, it's nine, Stan. Get it together. Come on, Stan. <laughs> and then Dave chimes in, guys, are you joking? <laughs> <laughs> are you just kidding around? Well, Demir is a secret guild that everybody's supposed to pretend doesn't exist. Don't forget about that. Little inside joke from the admin channel. Mm. Right, companions. They're the talk of the town. And frankly, I don't know why. I don't think they're that big of a deal. None of the decks are playing them. Unless, oh no, I'm looking at 
old results. All the decks are playing companions now, except Titan and Dredge. And everyone is kind of either upset, maybe some people are not as upset, but however you feel, they are here for now. And if you're playing Magic, there's a very strong chance that you are going to be facing off against them, especially in the more competitive queues of any format. Yeah, and the thing that's interesting, at least I think, is that they've led to some kind of maybe forced innovation or maybe gave some some decks a chance to kind of be looked at again. So we have some stuff to look at today in the dive down section where each of us look at, at some decks. Some of them are evolutions of decks that already exist. Some of them are decks that are kind of new decks or revitalized decks. And and some of them are decks that were maybe a lower tier that are kind of being pushed up now. And then I think toward the end of this conversation, we'll we'll kind of revisit the concept of companions and kind of weigh in on how we feel about them. Because it's been a week. It's been a big week. Yeah. I played a lot of leagues, guys. I saw a lot of different companions. Almost all of them. I, I should keep a bingo sheet. Uh, definitely. They're just, t- just 10 squares. Or a seven. I'm no graphic designer. I don't know how to arrange that. In a grid. All right, Dave, you're going to kick us off because you played the, the coolest companion. Is it the coolest one? Is it Cat Mob? Is the one that everybody plays the coolest one? I didn't play the indie one. No, that was me, wasn't it? Yeah, a little bit. I played... All right, we're going to start with a banger. So I played a deck this week with Luris of the Dream Den. As I mentioned earlier, that deck was Grixis Death Shadow with Luris, was the one that I spent the most time with. So who doesn't know Luris by now at this point? If you've been playing Magic lately, you're either playing it or you're playing against it. I don't think I need to read it, but I'm going to anyway just so everybody remembers. All right, Luris is one generic and two hybrid white-black mana. It's a legendary creature, Cat Nightmare. It's a 3-2. Its companion ability is each permanent card in your starting deck has a converted mana cost two or less. It has lifelink. And then it says, during each of your turns, you may cast one permanent spell with converted mana cost two or less from your graveyard. All right. How everywhere is it? Well, we just took a look at it. Stan mentioned uh, the the modern challenges that he looked at. Like we said, it was in nine of the top 16 decks. I played against it 70% of the time this week when I was playing playing league matches. Um, Humble brag. Yeah, right. I played against it a whole 70% of the time. Awesome. I think one thing that's interesting is that we knew we wanted to talk about Luris this week. Someone was going to play Luris decks. And the pervasiveness of it actually made it a little bit hard, right? Because it's in every deck, like we just talked about. There's aggro Luris builds. There's mid-range Luris builds, like Jund. Uh The aggro builds are like Prowess and Burn. There's uh, control ones that are kind of like, hey, I'm playing Demir Control Mill, where I only have four creatures, but I have Luris in my sideboard. Combo. Yeah, there's Combo, which I hadn't... That- Grinding for each deck. (laughs) I hadn't seen until that. So it's like, it goes in literally every style of deck. Um, You know, as Stan mentioned, you know, I had the fortune to play against the Merfolk Luris deck as well. And um, guess what? That worked too. And it's not just in modern. Like I played a Pioneer deck this week and I faced up against Luris probably 60% of the time. You know, you don't need just the the CMCs of Pioneer, uh, while not as low across the board as Modern, still plenty of decks can run CMC two or lower permanents. 
So instead of trying something too new, I thought I would try one of the less buzzed about lists with Luris. Now, it turns out it won one of the modern challenges, uh, which I didn't realize until a couple hours ago. Um, but it's a deck that I like playing a lot. So I wanted to see if Luris made just kind of a good modern deck better. And so that's why I ended up playing Grixis Death Shadow. The, the other thing that I want to do is that there's actually a couple of other Ikoria cards in the Grixis Death Shadow deck. I got a deck list from Michael Rapp from his Twitter feed. The, uh, you know, we, we had him on as a guest on the show a little bit ago, noted Death Shadow Scientist. Um, I made one little tweak to it. So it's not the same list as was in the challenge that had uh, Kroxa in it. The list that I was playing had three uh, three Ikoria cards in it, like I mentioned. It had Luris as the companion, it had Sprite Dragon, and it had Footfall Craters in it. So let's talk a little bit about each of the cards. So Luris itself. Guys, what's good about Luris? It's, it's weird how getting any two CMC or lower permanent back from your graveyard uh, can, can do valuable things for you. Yeah. I mean, the number one thing that everybody knows is that Grixis Death Shadow is already a Mishra's Bauble deck. And Luris goes great with Mishra's Bauble, so much so that many, many decks are now playing Mishra's Bauble with Luris, including Burn and all those other decks that we talked about a moment ago. Because what it does is it makes a little bit of a uh, kind of like a Howling Mind mine, where you get to draw an extra card uh, every turn once you have Luris up and Bauble going. It's me, Luris. One of the coolest things about drawing a card every turn off of Bobble is that it usually happens during the opponent's turn, so you don't get got by something like Narset Parter of the Veils. Oh, that's a great point, too. Yeah, you only draw one, one card off of it. I will say one of the best things to do, by the way, is to drop a Bobble after you've played a Luris, or... Crack a bobble, play Luris, and then crack a bobble again because all of a sudden it's like a zero CMC uh, divination, which is kind of amazing too. Yeah, sounds okay. Yeah, you get them all on your opponent's turn. That's true. The other thing that, of course, Luris does in this particular deck is that it lets you bring back your creatures, lets you bring back Death Shadow, most notably, which is nice because sometimes you end up in these situations where, you know, in the old Grixis list where you would be playing um, Coligan's Command to try to recur a Death Shadow on the second half of a Coligan's Command. This is way better. You get a creature, you play it for one mana, you move along your merry way so that you don't have to be quite so precious with losing your Death Shadows in the middle of the middle of the game. Yeah, your Death Shadow 1313 avatar moving along on its merry way. Yeah, you thought Unearth was good. I do think on Earth is good right now. Oh, yeah. More on that later. Oh, you mean copies three, two, and four of Luris? Yes, exactly. <laughs> That's how I count, too. In that order. <laughs> yep. <laughs> is that a Russian thing? You guys, I forgot what numbers were for a second. Well, good thing you're a writer and not a mathematician. Thank you. All right. The second card that I got to test in this deck was Sprite Dragon, which is that cute little blue-red spell. It costs a blue and a red. And it's a flying haste 1-1 that says whenever you cast a non-creature spell on it, put a plus one plus one counter on Sprite Dragon. Huh. Yeah. There's some fun stuff going on there. Wait a second. Are you telling me that Mishra's Bobble triggers Sprite Dragon? It does. You know what? It didn't come up as much as you might think it did, but it definitely does. 
So that's a great zero mana way to potentially buff your your sprite dragon. The card that actually came up a lot with this was uh, this deck also includes two copies of Dreadhorde Arcanist, which is actually super fantastic in a shadow deck that is filled with a bunch of proactive spells like Hand Disruption, Lightning Bolt, uh, even Opts. You know, this deck is kind of cut down on any other kind of counter magic. It just has, I mean, just having Stubborn Denial is pretty, pretty normal for Death Shadow, but this one is um, got Heavy on Lightning Bolt, Light on Fatal Push in order to let you be able to recur it with uh, Dreadhorde Arcanist. I mean, the thing that's interesting here, too, with Sprite Dragon is that it lets you, you know, you have to get rid of the higher CMC threats in this deck in order to run Luris. And so having something that's two, two mana cost that can grow really big is, is really good and does a reasonable kind of impression of a secondary threat to Death Shadow. Together, Dreadhorde Arcanist and Sprite Dragon let these two cards lead to a lot of double or triple spell turns where you're kind of like holding your last piece of removal and then you get through your Sprite Dragon instead because someone's trying to kill your Luris instead. So Sprite Dragon gives you a little bit of aggro boost, also gives you a way to make a big threat later in the game, and is pretty sweet occasionally with Team or Battle Rage. Uh, the final card that I tried was Footfall Crater, which is a one red enchantment. It's an enchant land, and it says, Enchanted land has tap, target creature gains trample and haste until end of turn, and it has cycling one. I ran this card as a one of. Um, I thought that this was a pretty good card, to um to just have in the 75 as a way to give your death shadow a chance to become a hasty monster out of the graveyard if you have Luris online. So you can pitch this early on to uh Luris to the cycling or sorry, not to Luris to the cycling trigger, bring it back later if you want it. You can bring back a death shadow later, all, all kinds of different things. But it was kind of a fun way to surprise people by um all of a sudden dropping a giant hasty trampling threat. Last card that's in this deck that is not a new card, it's an old card, but it's way, way, way more powerful now, is Unearth, which we were just talking about a moment ago. Uh, So it adds some extra recursion to the deck. The list that I was playing had two Unearths in it. And I just want to say, when I was saying earlier that I wonder about how good Burn with Luris really is, this is the reason why. is because I really feel like any deck that is playing Luris in Modern right now I feel like the best ones are the ones that can bring it back from the graveyard to be able to go at it again yeah, somehow. And so you don't really get a chance to do that in the burn decks. I also tried Luris Prowess and felt like it was kind of middling too, especially when I would kill someone's Luris and they would bring it back and they would kill my Luris and then my whole game plan was kind of just shot. One of the things that I found weird about this build is that it cuts down on Thought Scour. And instead running, you know, Serum Visions and Sleight of Hand. Yeah, I mean, I think that's worth talking about. So Thought Scour hasn't been run in, in Death Shadow for a long time. And I think it's mostly because you just want to be able to dig three cards and have some selection, right? So being able to set up your future hands, I think is a little bit better in in Death Shadow than doing the Thought Scour thing. Uh but maybe it's something to try out again with Luris. I do think there's kind of a tension here where, um, you know, being able to, how much do you want to twist your deck to have it play off of synergy with Luris, right? A lot of what Thought Scour, or not Thought Scour, what Serum Vision is there for is to help you make sure that you get enough land when you have like a land light hand. 
or get rid of land if you don't want land. And so I think that that selection is really important instead of the sort of just like pure optionality that Thought Scour can bring. That makes sense. I, like, considering it's only running 18 lands and it no longer has Street Wraith, yeah. I think I, I can. I can see why you would have to make that trade off. I would feel like Thoughts Coward still work well with Dreadhorn Arcanist as well as like the Unearths, but you only have two Unearths as well. Yeah. It's a good point with Dreadheart Arcanist because there you can always draw a card off of it at least, but you can also always draw a card off of Serum Visions if you want to. So I actually had a lot of a lot of a couple of times I would go, you know, Dreadheart Arcanist is out, play a Serum Visions, attack with Dreadheart Arcanist, Serum Visions again. It's 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 good like that for sure. Um, so uh, one thing that's really interesting about this list, and even the list that won the challenge, is that it was you know, a lot of sacred cows have been kind of slaughtered here. Like I think people thought there's no way that a um Death Shadow can run a creature with lifelink, which I think pretty easily you sidestep and it's actually pretty useful sometimes to have access to bringing your life total back up, even if your shadows get smaller. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the other thing is that it doesn't run street race. So you can't really turbo out a giant death shadow in the first couple of turns anymore when you get those really wild hands where all of a sudden you cut down like, you know, you do 10 damage to yourself or 11 damage to yourself in the first couple of turns and drop a giant shadow. Yeah, even Michael Rapp, like when Luris was spoiled, I I followed him on Twitter and he was saying something about like, you know, it's weird to have to cut Street Wraith from the deck to the point that he didn't think Luris was necessarily like the right shell for Death Shadow because Street Wraith was so vital to the strategy historically. Yeah, and I think what it shows is just that Bobble is is so powered up right now that it's better to just have that. I think the other thing that's interesting, speaking of him, and we'll bring him on for another interview, but he had a tweet that came out a couple of days later. He dropped a tweet that said... Um, Breaking news. He felt like... How did he state it? He basically said that he thought that Death Shadow was the best threat in a Luris deck because it was the right mana cost. Not that... Um, Luris was good in Death Shadow decks. And so it's this weird kind of like flipping of the script where he's kind of saying, if you want to play Tempo Luris, he thinks that Death Shadow is better than Delver, is what I think he's kind of getting at. And I've seen a number of different people kind of say that. It's part of the reason I tested this deck over Delver was because there were a lot of people who were like, no, don't play Delver. Um, also, I like Death Shadow and kind of knew how to pilot it already. Hey, don't you also like Delver though? <laughs> You know, I've wanted to. The only thing I've ever liked Delver in is Popper. Huh. I've never played Legacy, so it is what it is. Um, so I did some practice matches, and I got in one league with this deck. I went 3-2, playing against Luris Burn three times, Infect once, and Jund with Luris just, just in the main deck. Uh, I lost to Burn once and Infect once. I felt like both of those matches were actually super close and probably came down to a single misplay to have me lose them. So I felt like Death Shadow was in all of these matches. The thing that actually saved me the most in a Burn heavy meta was having access to one lifelink guy in the sideboard and having, or in the, you know, in my companion and also having on Earth there to bring it back. So, so you just like sort of like intelligently buffer it. Like you just you, you get a big big enough body that it can block, and but but doesn't put you. It keeps you out of lethal range. 
from like top deck burn spells or and of course like with burn when you're playing in Dust Shadow you get a lot better in the, in games two and game three because you bring in three cobrus and that helps a ton as well because you can three for three for one them three you know you discard your cards but you get so far ahead on mana there that it helps a lot um, by having them discard a card killing a creature and also nugging them and gaining some life all of those things help you a ton so it's that combination in games two and three that were really huge but um, I felt like the deck was really capable right now. I just don't know if really like the shadow plan is the right way to go for the best Luris deck. And I kind of think that that's what some of modern is going to be right now. It's like, what's the best Luris deck? Is it combo Luris? I mean, maybe there's one in each archetype, mm-hmm. right? Where we have like, what's the best tempo deck and what's the best aggro deck and what's the best, but there's all these different Luris builds. And I'm not sure if, you know, if this one is really the final form of this, definitely the deck that we looked at in the um, the Modern Challenge that was running Kroxa and Snapcaster Mage, that's a very different plan from my from the deck that I was playing that had Dreadhorde Arcanist and Sprite Dragon, right? My deck's a bit more aggressive. I think their deck's a little bit more mid-rangey. It's possible that you want to be a little bit more mid-rangey. I thought it was still fun to play, and I think if you are a shadow person, you should... You could definitely keep playing some version of Death Shadow with Luris in this meta and compete. So I think if you are worried about that, you shouldn't be. I think one thing that's also super weird about Luris right now is that Luris is just going in decks that already exist. And in fact, lots of the companions are just going in decks that already exist. But in particular, all of these are just getting added into different things. So it's a little bit more like you need a plan against Luris, and you need to figure out how to use your Luris the best. But it's not really... Um, I don't think ultimately there's only going to be one Luris deck in Modern. I think there's going to be tons and tons. Or none. Or, well, none. If it becomes tons and tons, then it will be none. I think you're right about that. <laughs> um, so if you like Shadow, play it. This deck is kind of a believe for me. I don't think it's like something I'm going to force myself to go back to. I'm not sure if it's like far and away the best deck in the format or anything like that, but I would play it again. I also think Sprite Dragon is decent to okay. It's not amazing, but I think it's pretty good. If, if you want to hear like individual other cards that are playable here. So here's a question. Traditionally, Grix of Shadow could like sometimes present like a virtual kill on turn three, right? Like it would just be so far ahead Maybe it didn't actually have the win, but like if opponent can't answer a turn two Gurmog Angler, you just kind of run away with the game. Do you feel like this deck is a slowed down version of that? If it's still a tempo strategy, is it just playing like a little bit slower because it's counting on like fewer big creatures that you can't have like a massive virtual threat on turn two or three? Yeah, it's definitely a little slower than that. Um, I. I think it's still on the quicker side, but I don't think it's like a virtual kill on turn three kind of thing at all. Dave, you've talked a little bit about this already, but what did you think was the most dramatic shift in your mindset you had to have playing with Luris versus playing different styles of this deck, whether that's you know the more aggressive Jun style or the more grindy Grixis style? Like, were you changing the way you approached matchups? Were you just getting just incidental value off the Luris? Uh, I think it was more the incidental value off off the Luris was 
an engine you want to try to pick up to to kind of go into the mid-game. So you had a little bit more kind of mid-game ability, I think, here in the main board, whereas sometimes out of the side, you you didn't get like Coligan's command until you went to the sideboard in the way that Grixis Shadow was kind of shaping up before. Um, I also think that I was a little less precious with my threats in this deck because I knew that Luris would be able to get them back if I really got in a bind. So if I got out a threat early and then they killed it, and then I switched over to the Luris plan where I could play my threats back out. That was a good kind of um, escape plan. Whereas sometimes you you get a little scared in Death Shadow where you're kind of like, well, I need to hold the threat in my hand, or I need to wait until I have a stubborn denial, something like that. I didn't really worry about it when I was playing this build quite as much. Yeah, so Stan and other people, of course, routinely describe this as kind of a, a protect-the-queen type strategy, but it sounds like you don't need to worry about that nearly as often. It just has a new queen. The new queen is Luris. Protect that queen. Death Shadow is no longer the queen that has to be protected, you know what I mean? Yeah, you want to keep Luris on the board as long as possible. Yep. And you protect her, I think, in a slightly different way. Like... Luris doesn't turn on your stubborn denial. Right, that, that is a problem with it. And neither does Sprite Dragon until you put some work into it. So that, that actually is a little bit of an awkwardness in the deck that I, that I played with, for sure. Uh, I actually felt like stubborn denial was kind of like average-ish in this build. But yeah, a little grimace on my face as I say that. But I mean, it's still kind of the best, um, you know, the best one-mana counterspell that's around, so... So anyway, as we kind of come out of this deck, it's a believe. I, I also played Luris Prowess just as like a little hat tip to some of our other uh, other decks that we we love on the show or I love on the show. And I'm not going to say much about it other than I didn't like it that much and I don't like Abbot of Carol Keep. And um, <laughs> I don't think it's a great Luris deck in my mind, but we'll see. We'll see. Maybe I need some more reps. Don't feel bad, Dave. I never liked Abbot of Carol Keep. Yeah. So before we go, before we park Luris, I wanted to talk about some tips about how to play Luris and how to play against it. So I'd love for you guys to join in because I know everybody's gotten a lot of reps against Luris. So the first thing I would say with Luris is that the number one thing to make sure you do is that you get value off of the static the turn you play it. So it's tough to play it as a 3CMC spell unless you have a bobble to bring back, because then you will get an extra card out of it. What do you guys think about that? Makes sense. Yeah, it takes me back to like all the stuff about you know Young Pyromancer, about Monastery Mentor. You want to be able to get a token out of it to get at least some value in the face of a removal spell. Yeah, so what goes hand-in-hand hand with that is make sure you play it when you have enough mana to do something with it. You don't always need the mana, though. Yeah, you don't always need it. So just make sure you're you're paying attention. The thing that goes hand in hand with that, I think a little bit is I think you need to think a couple of turns ahead with Luris. I mean, that's all of magic, right? But but make sure that you A, don't forget that you have a companion, which I think we've all done a couple of times. But B, you know, make sure you're thinking ahead about what you want to have in the graveyard and what you want to be able to play out the turn that you want to bring Luris into play because that'll help you decide maybe a creature that you chump block or chump attack with. Maybe when you fire off your seal of fire, maybe when you, you know, play out your bauble or, or whatever, 
just make sure you're planning ahead for what card you want to have in the graveyard for when Luris does come out because there are some decisions associated with that because what you don't want to have happen is that you get to the end of your hand and you have a great board built out. You don't really have a reason to play Luris, but it's the only thing you can play and so you kind of miss a turn of, of mana utilization. So it sounds like you're playing to set up a Luris play. Yes. Essentially. Whether that's on turn three or four or, or maybe later in the game. Yeah, depending on what deck you're on. Did you have like a ceiling in mind? Like this is the best thing that I have ever done with Alurus? I mean, the best thing I think in this particular deck is bringing back a giant, giant Death Shadow. I think it's pretty much what you want to do. Although really the best thing in this deck and maybe the best thing in all of the decks might be just getting extra bobble activations on it because then you're just getting a card. I mean, think of it this way. If you play Alurus and manage to draw a card off of it with a bobble, and your opponent does not have a companion, so you're playing against Titan, it's like a three-for-one. You know, because you had an extra card, they used a removal spell on it, so it's an 0-for-1, and you drew another card off of it, so it's an 0-for-2, which is, like, kind of wild. One thing I'm curious about, Dave, in that vein, is you you can't run a Ranger Captain of Eos anymore in this mm-hmm. type of deck, and, and you played some Mardu Shadow yeah. back when that was a thing. How would you compare the Luris version of this sort of grindier strategy to the grind that Ranger Captain, Unearth, uh, Mardu Shadow brings you? I mean, it's been a long time since I played Mardu Shadow. I think that this one has the ability to be more aggro than the... Mardu one did, although the Mardu deck had the ability to kind of combo you out with Hex Parasite, where you could kind of get your stuff down, fetch up Hex Parasite, and then drain yourself of a ton of life and attack with a giant uh, a shadow. So I, I think that this is lower on the grind scale than Mardu, and a little faster. But you get counter spells in this one, so you you can't really. Pro- it was harder to protect your stuff in the in the other deck. And does it more does it feel like efficient or does it feel pretty grindy? You said it didn't feel ridiculously grindy. No, I think it feels pretty efficient still. I mean, it feels like you're you're you know you're serum visioning into threats. You're setting yourself up for what you need. You hold up a lightning bolt. You're you know I had a, a game where I got to like thought seize someone three times off of dread you know dread horarchinist thought seize dread horarchinist. Like it was kind of like I used. I did it a bunch of times to people. It was so I just pick their hand apart and go for it. I think Dreadheart Arcanist helps with that kind of stuff a bit too. That to me almost sounds like your replacement for Street Wraith, mm. where although you may be losing a little bit of that churn, you are still you still have a killer tool to aggressively like chip away at your own life total while putting yourself ahead of your opponent. Yeah, I mean, I think the key there is more just getting extra value out of your uh, discard spells. Mm-hmm. which is huge sometimes when you get to take both threats that someone has or both removal spells or something. Um, last tip, I think, for playing with Luris is that I think it, personally, I think it's best in the decks that can recur it. We kind of hinted towards this earlier when we talked about Unearth. We ta- hinted to it in the challenge. I, I really feel like, ultimately, the decks that can play Luris multiple times are going to be very strong because everybody is going to be packing instant, instant speed removal to kill Luris. And they should be. You have to. And so that brings me up to the, the tips that I had for playing against it, which is you got to kill it or counter it as fast as possible. 
or else you're going to fall so far behind on card advantage that you're just not going to be able to come back. And so, for example, I think that you know the switch in Grixis Death Shadow was that it was running for Fatal Push. It's now running for Lightning Bolt. You know, it's more proactive with Dreadhorde Arcanist to be able to bolt somebody twice potentially and kind of get things going. But also, it kills Luris at instant speed. You know, in decks that are red, they're running Seal of Fire with their Luris so that they can bring it back over and over again to kill opponents' Lurises. And of course, you know, maybe you're burning people too, but I really think it's there to just be a recursive removal engine more than anything else, specifically to kill Luris. So you got to always be thinking about that particular aspect of it and probably saving removal for it, unfortunately. Do you think it's time to start playing more Stony Silence effects to shut off Bobble? That seems bad to me <laughs> as an option, just because um, there are some decks that don't care that much. You know, I think if, if the only triggers you're going to stop somebody from getting are Bobble triggers with Stony Silence, I would say it's not worth it to you to bring it in. Because they'll just use it to get back a permanent, a different permanent instead. Now, if you're playing against a deck that only has baubles and a low creature count, so the permanence it's kind of like a control deck. You're probably also still bad because you know they they're probably going to kill you with Snapcaster Mage, uh, you know, or something like that. I think Graveyard Hate's a lot more effective against Luris, and that's probably what I would like to do instead of kind of something like Stony Silence. Uh, I think that's secondary to just killing it, but. You know, I think it's possible that a lot of decks are going to start looking at a combination of instant speed removal and surgical extraction again as the way to do this because you can get rid of a bobble if you can't kill Luris or or whatever. So, not main deck surgical, by the way. I'm not advocating that. You can't stop me. <laughs> anyway, Grixis Death Shadow with Luris, believe. Sweet. Wow, very tempered take. Shane, tell me you're a little bit more excited about your companion, your new best friend. Who you have to love. Hmm. Okay. Well, I do love Obosh. It's like my favorite weird millipede from space looking thing. Um, so I explored. We should mention that you explored Pioneer. Yes. Yeah. This is the only Pioneer content on this episode. Keep in mind, everybody. Yeah. Yeah. You know me. Yeah. I'm, uh, I knew that these gents were going to run with some modern, so I wanted to explore the pioneer domain since we profess to be a modern pioneer podcast. Um, and I do enjoy pioneer. It's fun right now. I'm playing pioneer and modern for the first time in a while, like simultaneously. We've got a, we've got a, a friendly league going with the super secret Slack server and the citizens of the dive down nation. So I'm running, I'm running, actually running a companion there in modern humans because why not? You can. So, so run it. Which one are you running in Modern Humans? Uh, that that five color one. Yaganta, like the one that, yeah, like it taps. You know, it's just a it's just a free creature. So if it's free, it's me. In the words of Brian Gottlieb, um, Giganta. Yeah, Yaganta. By the way, I played against Storm running that. Yeah, why not? Just because you can. What? Piloted by the Pen Sword. He and I had got <laughs> matched up the other day in a league, and yeah, he was playing Storm with Gigantha. There's going to be so many mentions of previous dive down guests on this episode. Yeah. We're not done yet. 
<laughs> so um, I did play Pioneer, and I played the latest iteration of Gruel Aggro. I came across this deck, be I think everyone did, because Yama Killer, who's a very well-known and high-quality streamer, uh, a.k.a. Gull Schlesinger, he was actually our first guest on this podcast. And since he was the first, we're going to keep running that into the ground. Um, he, he ran this deck in a Pioneer Super Qualifier on the 17th of April. He went 7-1 with it. And so people took notice, and it's appeared in essentially the same form in Pioneer Challenges, Pioneer Leagues, Pioneer Super Qualifiers, so definitely has some chops. Um, so you're going to be probably be saying, so okay, Gruel Aggro, nothing new in Pioneer, but this is Companion Gruel. And much like in our Ponza deck dive last week, this deck is featuring Obosh the Prey Piercer. I think he's piercing the prey with those, those pointy legs. Oh... Pierce, 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 pierce. That's that's the noise of piercing. Pierce, 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 pierce. Um, so if you forget what Obosh does, it's three um, Rakdos, Rakdos, hybrid mana for a 3-5 companion. It forces you to have odd CMC costs for all your cards in the main deck. Um, and the payoff is that all of your odd CMC sources deal double damage. So pretty cool. Um, you kind of see where this is going. It doesn't take... You know, it doesn't take a lot of thinking to say, okay, if I run a lot of big aggressive things in my Gruel aggro deck and I play my Obosh, they deal a lot more damage and I win games. Right? Mm-hmm. That did not take a lot of thinking. You're correct. No. So how does this differ from the old Gruel aggro decks that ostensibly were doing the same thing just without double damage, right? So uh, they had plenty of even CMC cards that had to be removed for this version. So that could be, you know, there's all sorts of different ways to build the, these aggressive Gruel decks. So you have things like Burning Tree Emissary or Hazaret or Questing Beast or Voltaic Brawler or the newer Zertog Goblin. You know, you get your Lightning Strikes. That's even CMC. You don't get access to like the only three mana burn spell. I'm sorry, three damage burn spell. You don't get your Chandra Torch of Defiance. You don't get your Scavenging Ooze. Maybe sometimes you want a Rekindling Phoenix in there. Also, interestingly, you don't get your Collected Company. So that was an imported, important card advantage and card selection engine. And you don't get your Finisher of Embercleave anymore. That's a big that's a big uh, subtraction, right? Mm-hmm. So so it's just giant 3 CMC creatures. It's kind of Essentially, it's it's big, it's big stuff. Yeah, and you get some different finishers. So you don't have Embercleave. Uh you know, you get stuff like uh Crater's Claws as kind of a giant fireball with upside. Uh, and you have you this this runs stuff that would typically be seen maybe like in a green stompy deck, like perhaps uh, Ronis and things like that. And Clothis is in this deck, of course, too. So I'm gonna I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about all the bits and pieces that go into how the deck plays out. So and how this how it's built. So the construction of the deck is much like other gruel or green based decks, like I just said, right? So we have our eight mana elves, we have our bony G's, we have Lovestruck Beasts, we have Ronus, we have Steel Leaf Champion, we have Yorvo, Gruel Sp- Spellbreaker, and our old friend Clothis. And for some additional value, some increased clock, some potential flexibility, you get cards like Domri Anarchavolus, you get the Great Henge. 
And like I said, Crater's Claws, which is just a fireball with like the ferocious upside that if you have a creature with four or more damage, you add two to the X. So let's say you cast it for one and one red and three other mana. If you've got something with four or more power, it deals five damage. Pretty cool. So how does this deck play out? Um, Like usual, it's really reliant on having that opening hand of like green and red lands and a mana dork because you really want to be ramping to three, especially when you have almost nothing to do on turn two except for uh, the stomp off of your bone crusher giant. So it's really challenging to want to keep a hand that doesn't have some acceleration. But again, those hands don't always come to you, especially because the mana challenges of allied mana. I may have mentioned those in past episodes. Um, you, there's a lot of, like Dave said, there's a lot of really redundant pieces to play out on turn three. You have Lovestruck Beast, you have Yorville, you have Steel Leaf Champion, and these are kind of like your backbone of big green beaters. And Bone Crusher Giant gives you kind of your flexible shock and your 4-3 creature. A Gruel Spellbreaker is interesting in this because it can be cast as a 3-3 with haste or as a 4-4. And that's nice because it gives you a decent-sized body on three. Or late game, it's like a bunch of haste damage out of nowhere. Plus it has Trample. So if you've got Obosh out, it is dealing an extra little punch. Yeah, Gruel Spellbreaker is definitely a nice late game card. It's something that I, I would sandbag. Like I would always almost play almost always play some other three drop because I want to get Spellbreaker as a surprise. So you get that you get that haste with Obosh. It's a hasty you know six three and with a trample. That can be you know pretty choice for finishing off the opponent. I liked Ronus in this deck too, for similar reasons, because it gets you, it lets you buff your creatures past blockers. So with Obosh out as well, each of your pumps off of the Ronus is worth four damage, and you're giving Trample. So it's a nice way to get past a board stall late game after you eventually stabilize, get that Obosh out, and just have some giant creatures to pump up. There's some interesting options also for like long game value out of stuff like the Great Henge and Clothis. Uh, I think Clothis suffers a little bit in Pioneer because you can't ramp almost at all unless you're playing against um, a deck that's running the what's the sacrifice fabled passage. Passage. Well, when you say ramp, you mean fetch, right? Like this deck ramps, but you don't have good ways to get lands into your graveyard. Yeah, because Clothis isn't. You, the main, the main, the main phase trigger off cloth is you'd almost never have a land. Yeah, to, right. To, to trigger, I mean, you're always doing two damage with it, I guess. But yes, yeah, yeah. You kind of wish you had the ramp sometimes too, because then you can go into a uh, bigger. You can go into Obosh on turn three if you get lucky. Yes, that would be nice. Um, the life swing, like you said, uh, especially with Obosh, Obosh doing like the extra two damage off of the trigger is significant, though. Um, the deck really does come alive with Obosh. So once you are on maybe you know turn four, turn five, uh, you you're able to play Obosh. Hopefully with a couple other big creatures out, and all of your threats become these incredible damage producers. Like your five five Lovestruck Beast is swinging for ten. Your Hasty Gruel Spellbreaker is swinging for six Trample. You know, your Crater's Claws cast for five mana, typically with a Ferocious Trigger. You can just deal twelve to someone's dome, <laughs> just like that. Yeah. Um, important strategic note, do not cast your Crater's Claws for even mana. Because then it doesn't do it. Doesn't do it. And then you lose, like I did. 
Whoops. Because you're like, oh, wait, you lost? Yeah, I had lethal if I had just removed the creature with Crater's Claws, and I did it for like an even amount of mana, and then they didn't die, and I was like, ah, oh, poop-a-doop. So anyway, the, the deck sort of plays out in interesting ways, because sometimes you want to be getting damage in before the opponent can stabilize. Like if they're playing a more controlling deck, you want to avoid their Planeswalkers, you want to you know get under their counter spells, you want to get under their sweepers. But other times, and I think more typically in the current state of Pioneer, you're building a wide board, you're being defensive, and then you're turning the corner. So you're making that big swing by maybe removing a specific creature off the board and then getting lethal in, or you're trampling over with a pumped-up creature off of Aronis, or you're just doming them with the gigantic Crater's Claws. Um, another option that this deck has for kind of surprise burst damage is with Slaughterhorn, which is your your odd CMC kind of like Gore Clan Rampager. It's typically run as a two or three of, and it gives uh, for Blood Rush you discard it, pay a green mana, and it gives your target attacking creature plus three plus two until end of turn. So that's plus six, plus two, in a uh, with Obosh down, pretty good. Whoa, yeah, shocking. I didn't realize that Obosh improved like. Uh, Combat trick. No, it, it doesn't improve the combat trick. It just effectively improves the combat trick. Ah, I see what you're saying. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's basically, is it like a scale up? Yeah. Then almost, which is pretty funny. I, mean, I, I will say, I thought Slaughterhorn, Slaughterhorn came out a lot because it's like, it's one of those cards where it's not always great. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Uh, because it's just a three mana, three, two if you're desperate. And um, you don't want to be desperate in a deck like this. Right. Uh, and so a lot of the thinking, much like you mentioned, Dave, a lot of the thinking in this deck goes into playing with Obosh in the back of your mind. So it's like, how am I playing for this burst? Am I playing for this burst win? Am I playing for like a go wide win where I just have a bunch of five damage and four damage creatures and I eventually get enough of them down that they just can't stop lethal? Um, am I going over the top with like one of my two Crater's Claws? Am I hoping to draw into those? Am I going to remove something with the Crater's Claws and then swing in for lethal? So you you can aggro people out, but I think it's typically more of like a longer game deck where you try to maneuver yourself into a position to get that sort of longer game value against certain opponents. So that's really interesting because I was going to ask how fast this deck was. Since one of the things that stick out to me is it has literally no sources of card advantage. Yeah. It depends on how fast you can get the Obosh down. And I think this is, I'll talk about this and I think sort of the weaknesses coming up, but I I think relying on your mana dorks and relying on your mana dorks surviving is potentially an issue at times. And it's pretty it's a pretty land light deck. Like most of the decks were in like 22 lands and that wasn't exactly my favorite like i definitely felt like an extra land or two could be valuable because it's a little bit greedy i think especially in a in a meta where you know, uh, removal and burn is is more popular than ever i think in terms of the the burn based strategies in terms of the burn in terms of the bird especially for pioneer where where luris has made boros burn suddenly a thing there yeah. Um, so let's talk about uh, some strengths of this deck. I think that there's a lot of creatures with a lot of toughness. And so playing against burn decks, 
uh, makes the removal not very great, and you can stabilize on the ground really well. So, like anyone who's played a red deck knows what a pain like a Lovestruck Beast is, and when you have like four redundant copies of some kind of Lovestruck Beast like creature, uh, that doesn't make things good for for red removal, and a lot of the three drops make Fatal Push less good as well because it requires other permanents to leave the battlefield. So unless they have like a Fable Passage triggering it, you can sort of intelligently try to avoid making silly blocks or silly attacks because or removing things that you don't really need to. Because like like pre-combat, you're like, okay, well, I can stomp this blocker and get some extra damage in, and then they just fatal push your creature before attacks, and you're like, poop, that was dumb. Yeah, like, like why did I, I do that? I didn't yeah. need to do that yeah. at all. Like, don't enable, don't turn on the fatal pushes unless you have to type thing. Um, and like I said before, I think one of the strengths is just Obosh, because it's a it's a big-time game-changer. Like, nothing, nothing else really does what Obosh does in terms of sheer damage increase. Did you mention the interaction between Obosh and Domri? In terms of Domri's pump, like being like a sort of an extra extra little pump. And the fight ability. Sure. The fight doubles too from Obosh. Yeah, though I mean that's nice. Perfectly nice. Like if you have something huge to get off the board, you certainly can. Um I was in a position um in one round where if like I could have like like the fight would have won me the game. But it just mm-hmm. they they were able to do something like if I had one more turn, but that's that's magic, right? I'm not, it's not, I'm not this is not being a bad beat story, but they're just saying the power of the fight is there for sure. Yeah. Like you can you yeah. can clear a very big um, aura aura up creature in the auras deck, right? Like you you fight it off the board and then you get a ton of damage through, for example, and that's definitely there. But sometimes it's like you know, especially in the auras deck, if they get one more aura on that creature, then you're like, well crap this fight's not even doing it now um i think there are plenty of weaknesses of course though i mean this is an ally deck in pioneer and the mana sucks um game trail still sucks uh, big time really big time um i think that the current builds feel a little greedy especially on the red end of things like i would add at least one mountain like i think i had an extra mountain when i was playing um it just it just pays to to be safe, I think, in decks like this, especially when mana dorks are going to get picked off. I mean, Sultai is still out there. Burn's still out there. This deck's still out there. Uh, the Aura's deck typically either runs Fatal Push main or has access to Fatal Push in the side, and that's extremely popular. So you're going to see ways to get your mana dorks picked off, and then you're going to be, well, I got nothing to do in turn two. Uh, I'm not ramping out into anything. And uh, that puts you really behind on tempo. And Pioneer is extremely board-based. It's extremely board control-based. And losing that can be pretty debilitating. Combine that with the fact that a lot of times your mana might be coming into play tapped. Like you're t- you top deck a game trail as your third land. You're not holding a stomping ground. You're not holding a forest or a mountain. And you're like, well, here's my third land coming into play tapped <laughs> after, after they shocked my elf. Yeah, I meant to do that. What? Yeah. What a start. <laughs> Feels really good. Yeah. So the, the, the tempo issues are real. And um, but I still think, you know, eventually the the mana will catch up and gruel will feel pretty darn good. Um I also think speaking of the speed question you asked, Dan, I think it's not incredibly fast 
versus some of the combo strategies, especially ones like Converter, because they're also interacting with your hand, they're interacting with your board, you're not applying enough pressure, and you're eventually going to lose the game. Bummer. I know, I'm sorry. But thankfully, I mean, Inverter's popularity has waned a bit. But at the same time, speaking of the future of this deck, I think that the popularity of this deck already seems to be waning a bit. Um, I don't know if it has anything to do with like the inherent flaws of this deck right now, but I think more on the position that it has in the metagame. But I'm already seeing a trend downward from, you know, Yama Killer takes us to a tournament. We've got like five players playing it in the next tournament. And then there's kind of, there's none in the latest challenge. There's one in the latest challenge, but there's none in the challenge or the super qualifier uh, before that. So, I mean, that's that's the natural variation of the meta. But typically you see the same deck showing up more frequently. And what we see showing up more frequently is auras. And this deck has an awfully hard time dealing with auras because the creatures get huge. They have lifelink. They have vigilance. They get out of your burn range, even with your creator's claws typically. And you have a really hard time playing to the, the long game unless you are fortunate enough to have something like uh, a Ronis because then you get death touch and that's pretty nice um, and indestructible. So that, that helps out sometimes you also, can you put them in a position where even with, let's say, one huge suited-up lifelinker, they can't actually swing in if they don't have Vigilance, the crackback's really bad. And so you can kind of put them in a position where you continue to build your board wide and try to surprise them with an Obosh. Maybe you have like a really big Crater's Clause at that point. You can pick off even a like nine power, like nine toughness creature and then swing in. That's more fortunate than not. Because typically what they're doing is just overrunning you because they are, they get up to you know 45 life. They have like a 11-11 <laughs> lifelinker with vigilance and you just have no way to get it off the board. Yeah, that's brutal. Brutal for red decks. I mean, if you if it's like if you wanted to tech against it, you'd have to run like that card that kills all enchantments. And mm-hmm. yeah, the sideboard right now, uh, I think runs natural state. I believe is a typical inclusion. And I think that, yeah, I think the one to go to at this point is just get all enchantments off board. Yeah. Um, which is, you know, costs one more mana. It makes you unable to run Obosh. But if you're running back to nature, destroying all enchantments, you're probably going to get a far, you're going to be far enough ahead on board to, to swing and, you know, get the win, hopefully. I, I noticed that Heaven and Earth is also in the sideboard. Is that just a concession to how good like the flyers are in black-white? Like If they have a flyer suited up, can you deal with that without a Domery? Even, I mean, the X cost on that would still probably be not be enough. Do you know what I mean? Like Because you're paying green and an X to deal X damage to each creature with flying. You're not going to typically have enough mana to get to that. Um but yeah, I mean, I, I didn't run Heaven and Earth in my deck. Mm. This is this is a sort of a more recent inclusion. Uh, I definitely think that you need to heavily tech against auras right now in Pioneer. So run all the bad natures you can. Um, you know, I I lost a game versus auras where I drew two hate cards, uh, an extra piece of removal, and thought I had the game on lockdown. And you know, they can just they can just rally back really quickly. I think if Auras becomes more targeted against in the meta and then slips down a bit, I do think this deck has some better game against other 
bigger players in the meta right now. Like I was talking about how I think it has a very favorable matchup against Burn right now. You know, you get your big creatures down, you have some incidental life gain through Clothis, and you're going to take over the game. You're going to win the long game versus Burn, I think. Mono White Devotion is probably a little bit more even. Like their defensive creatures can't really keep up with the threats you're presenting, but then you don't get a lot of great interaction against their combo. And if you combine that with the enchantment-based removal they have to just keep picking off your creatures, depending on the volume of removal they have or draw into, uh, things can be tough. I think it's probably it's more of an even matchup than the Aura's deck, for sure. One thing I was thinking about for the future of this deck, though, is, is why not black-green Stompy? Like, you, you get to keep your Fatal Pushes versus Auras. You get to keep your Thoughtseize versus Combo. You get to run a bunch of your same giant creatures, and you get access to something like Rotting Regisaur. Uh, but, you know, you, of course, you lose a lot of the red stuff you have access to, especially your finishers like Clothes and Crater's Claws, which is probably not a, a really big benefit for you. But I feel like it's it's so weak. Personally, I feel like it's so weak against the Auras deck that I really want access to push, potentially. But maybe maybe if you just load up on green enchantment removal, you're you're decent enough in that fight. Um, I did see a single black green Obosh deck in a recent league, but obviously it's not as popular right now because we're not seeing it in all sorts of lists. Um, but I think it, that that might might be something to test if you're curious about Obosh. If you like black green strategies, why not give it a shot? Because I think having the hand interaction and the board interaction is is going to be an advantage there. All right, before we get to your rating, yeah. Number one tip for someone who is playing against an Obosh-style deck. Yeah. What do you think people need to do to try to outmaneuver the plans that Obosh presents? Well, I mean, of course, the easiest thing, right, is keep the board clear. Easier said than done. Um, And then also, don't put yourself in a position to lose to an Obosh being played. Because you always know it's coming, Mm -hmm. right? You always know it it could be coming. So that's easier said than done as well. Like if you if you're playing a, a fatal push deck, uh, sandbag that that uh, fabled passage as long as possible, right? Because then you could pick off. You know you can't get Obosh. Obosh is five mana, right? But you can get a three mana creature, mm-hmm. for especially or even a hasted three mana creature out of the hand, um, like the Gruel Spellbreaker or something like that. Yeah, yeah. I that's the big thing about Obosh, right? Is that there's almost no ways to kill it at instant speed. In in Pioneer, right? Well, there's that new card. The No Counters one. Yeah, there's the No Counters card. There's Assassin's Trophy. Oh, good. There you go. Yeah. And that's all you need. <laughs> there you go. So yeah, I mean if you're playing if you're playing black, definitely keep those on hand. And it's one of those things where you know it's in their deck and you know they're gonna want to play it. Right. Yeah, lightning axe kills it, Dave. Well, that that's the main card I was thinking. I was lightning axe, and I was like, nobody's ain't nobody playing lightning axe right now. Keep your counter spells up. You know, counterspell the Obosh. There's not going to be... I mean, if, if you lose to the slow plotting of all the rest of the creatures, then sure, that's bad. But it's a lot worse to lose in a single turn with the Obosh, I think. Especially if you, if you, if you have some sweepers, if you're drawing to sweepers, you know, you want to maintain your single point removal or your bounce or something like that for an Obosh. All right. So what do you think of this deck all in? This deck right now, right now, I think is a kind of a believe minus. And and it's mainly because I don't think it's the best thing to be doing right now. Because the, the, the speed, the size of the creatures, the life gain of the Auras deck combined with what Luris brings to the Auras deck, 
I think is is really bad for you. And the the allied mana makes you lose to you can lose to that. Um, and I think that just people are effect, people have effective ways to fight against what you're doing. But I think that if things slow down in some way, if you're if you're able to set up a roadblock of giant toughness creatures, some with indestructible, and be getting value off of your Clothis over the long game. I think that you could up the Clothis in this deck, by the way. I think one main might be too low because of the amount of life loss you're, you're experiencing uh, because of the decks you're playing against. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly a great mid-range deck, but I, I'm not sure that it's kind of what I want to be doing um, until someone checks Auras a little bit more. And I think again, Gruel will be in a great place in a couple, in like a year or two, when we have access to to some some better mana, and it's 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 able to fight on a more even playing field with uh, enemy color decks. Thanks, Shane. No, thank you, Stan. Thanks for listening. My pleasure. Thank you for playing Pioneer for us. Maybe I'll play Pioneer next week. I, it's my turn now, right? I get to talk. It is. You had the cutest companion, I think. You didn't leave me a lot of time, so I'm just going to jump into it. We both both went like 25, 30 minutes, so good luck, Stan. Sorry. Yeah, I, I'm I'm going to just cut to the chase. The deck I played was amazing. Truly, truly fantastic. And if you want me to wait till the very end of my section to give you an actual rating, I'll do that. But I'm telling you, I, I loved this deck, and I think it's very good. And it is Zerda Elves. Basically a green-white elf deck that's slotting Zerda the Dawnmaker. One Boros mana, Boros mana for an elemental fox. The companion clause is that each permanent in your starting deck has to have an activated ability. It also says that abilities that you activate that aren't mana abilities cost two generic mana less to activate. This effect cannot reduce the mana in that cost to less than one mana. So bare minimum, you're always paying at least one mana to activate an ability, but in some cases, that's all you have to pay. Mm-hmm. It also has one tap, target creature can't block this turn, and it's a 3-3. How often did that come up? So, so often. Okay. It's one of the reasons why this card is like crazy good. It's because nobody realizes that it makes creatures practically unblockable. That's amazing. All right, let's hear it. All right. So what is this deck that I'm playing? Green-White Elves. It's an elf deck that combines several different combo strategies into one deck. Sometimes I would lovingly refer to it as oops all combos. And really the goal of this deck is to win on turn three or turn four. Usually by giving your creatures either infinite power and toughness or by producing infinite mana and then swinging for lethal with a bunch of juiced up creatures that you made giant with all of your mana. Sometimes it's uh, just one, sometimes it's several creatures doing the swinging, but ultimately this is a creature-based combo strategy that needs to swing for lethal to win. And Zerda is a big part of the deck since it can make the cost of enabling some of those combos cheap enough that the right pieces together just go infinite. And I'll go more into the actual combos in a little bit because there are several at play. But the core of the deck is that a bunch of mana dorks and a handful of payoffs come together and with Zerda as the glue holding it all together, with one third of your deck being mana dorks, you have like a lot of consistency for some of your key combo pieces. A, Zerda's always in your deck, or B, you're always going to draw at least a creature that produces mana. 
And this deck emerged pretty shortly after the release of Elob. Uh, I think it came out like after the first weekend was when it first started seeing some play. And I heard about it in the Slack when, you know, Citizen Craig told us that someone had built this deck and it was going undefeated with no sideboard. (laughs) And I, I don't know if at that time that was happening like in a Discord channel or on Twitch or what, but eventually the deck hit Reddit, I think by that original architect. Then it was streamed on Twitch by friend of the show, Aspiring Spike, playing kind of a version of it. And then it also appeared in a 5-0 list on Friday, and then we saw a version of it in the Modern Challenge. So the deck is kind of like picking up steam right now. And I decided to play it because A, I love elves. I've talked about it before. I'll probably mention them again. I think elves are a cool tribe, especially in Modern. You are an elf on our token. That's also true. I do love a turn three kill. Who doesn't? It's a great thing to do in Modern, especially. I don't know if I mentioned that I'm playing the modern version of Elves, so I'll let that be clear. And and also, Elves has been struggling a bit lately, you know, especially after the release of Modern Horizons. But I felt like the speed and the potential consistency of this deck sounded like maybe the kind of juice that a struggling tribe might need to stay competitive. And I got to say, the fact that it had like this hype surrounding the fact that this person went 4-1 in modern leagues twice without a sideboard. Like, they were trying to do the meme thing and, and, and get a trophy without one. They never got it. But still, like, I thought that was a really interesting platform to just kind of like bounce off of. Yeah. All right. So what are the combos? There are several. I don't want to spend too much time on them, but we have to explain what they are. This list is more than several. <laughs> this is a lot of combos. This is like a this is a multifaceted bullet list. <laughs> this is nine combos. There's nine combos in here. <laughs> All right, and, and there's some redundancy among them. Zerda is like integral to several. Umbral Mantle is integral to some several. You're gonna have to describe some of the, these to me too. So why don't we hop in on the first one you have on your list, which is Zerda, Izuri, and Devoted Druid. How does this work? I want to actually be looking at the cards while I'm talking about them too. Sure. No, go from memory. You got to double check the text, or otherwise we're going to get letters. Yeah, that's true. Eventually, I was going off memory once I had was on my third league, but uh, I still it, it still helps to read. Stan, Azuri Claw Progress is not modern legal. Okay. Oh God, what rooms was I in? <laughs> All right. So first combo: Zerda plus Azuri plus Devoted Druid, basically. Infinite Azuri activations that can pump all the elves on your board with infinite power and toughness and trample, including the original Devoted Druid. What happens here is that Zerda makes the Azuri cost to give your creatures plus three, plus three, and trample only cost three green mana. And if your Devoted Druid doesn't have any negative one counters on it, you tap it the first time to make a green mana, the second time to make a green mana, or you don't even have to cast it the second time if you have mana up. You basically have to activate Azuri one time to make your devoted druid able to tap and untap infinite number of times. I see. So what so what happens here is you put negative counters on it. Eventually you kind of have to, but they don't actually shrink your creature. Right. They don't kill it because Azuri keeps giving it plus three plus three. Yeah. Yeah. Got it. So it doesn't wipe out the counters because they're not plus one, plus one counters, but it just doesn't die. And so as long as you have other creatures, you can make everything huge, including a giant Azuri. Including a giant Devoted Druid. 
Right. That I guess eventually you can untap and attack with too. That makes that makes sense too. Right. Okay. Okay, so that's there's one. One of the other key combos, and this is the one that actually threatens a turn three kill, is Zerda plus Umbral Mantle plus any mana dork. So Umbral Mantle is a three mana equipment artifact that says equipped creature has pay three, untap with the little untap symbol. Mm-hmm. This creature gets plus two plus two until end of turn. It's also equip zero. Mm-hmm. So with Zerda out, that untap ability only costs one. So you tap your mana dork with Zerda out, and you only have to pay that one mana to untap it again with the Umbral Mantle. You do that infinite times, your creature becomes a 20-20. If you're doing this on turn four and Zerda's been out for a turn, you can now tap an opposing creature to clear the way for your 20-20 mana dork. And you swing for lethal. How do you get both both Zerda and Umbral Mantle out on turn three? So you cast the Umbral Mantle on turn two because it's harder to interact with an in, with the artifact, especially in game one. Okay. And you have a Mana Dork on turn one. So you have to hit all of your land drops. You have to have a turn one Mana Dork. But it's not that hard. No. It's not that complicated, yeah. No, there's. I think there's 20 Mana Dorks in this deck. It's not hard. Exactly, yeah. Okay. So that's one. Uh, Ding. Yeah. <laughs> Zerda plus Umbral Mantle plus Jaroga Tree Speaker equals infinite mana and infinite power toughness on every creature that has a tap ability. And you can also use this combo to prevent all opponents' creatures from blocking. Uh, Jaroga Tree Speaker is a single mana level up creature. If it gets to levels one through four, it can tap to add green green, and it is a one two. One that extra power, I'm sorry, that extra toughness is kind of relevant. If it's levels five onward, all of your elves can tap to make green green. This one didn't come up as often. Tree Speaker was just kind of like a creature that gets you out of a tight spot. More on that later. Azuri plus two devoted druids without any Zerda is just infinite Azuri activations. Izuri plus Leyline of Abundance plus Devoted Druid equals infinite Izuri activations and infinite power and toughness on every elf, including the original Druid. This deck runs Marwyn the Nurturer. Marwyn Marwyn plus Umbral Mantle, and that's it, is infinite mana, infinite power toughness on everything that can tap for mana. It's got Elvish Arch Druid plus Umbral Mantle plus two other elves equals infinite power and toughness on the Arch Druid. Arshruid plus the mantle plus three other elves equals infinite power and toughness on anything that can tap for mana. Last one, Zerda, Umbral Mantle plus any elf plus Leyline equals infinite mana and power and toughness on everything that can tap and your opponents can't block. Now, can you guys repeat those back to me? <laughs> yeah, got it. I got That's it. That's consistency for you. I'm here. So the first deck I played was just a ton of elves plus... Four copies of Mantle plus four copies of Collected Company. And then Everett took this on Twitch and started jiggering it about to try to make it a little bit more grindy and a little less all-in on the combo. And I did not play that deck. I didn't really like that version. But one thing that I really liked that Everett did was he added four copies of Stoneforge Mystic. (laughs) So what Stoneforge Mystic does, if you play that version of the deck, is that A, it adds virtual copies of your Umbral Mantle. It also gives you the ability to to fetch up a Batter Skull. No swords, just Batter Skull, which can actually, I found, help 
win some matchups just outright. Like against humans, Batter Skull was so good. Against Burn, Battle Skull was fantastic. And I mean, ultimately, Battle Skull might just win you the game. It might just buy you time until you find uh, an Umbral Mantle. This is so awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, Stoneforge also lets you cheat important combo pieces into play sometimes for just one mana when Zerda's around. Right. And that one mana difference often can be like game changing because your margins of mana are so narrow here. And like ultimately at the bottom line, I feel like Zerda might just effectively solve a lot of the problems that elves have been facing after Modern Horizons. Because what Modern Horizons did to this deck is that it added Plague Engineer, seriously nerfing like a lot of tribal strategies, especially elves. Renin Six, which just pings off all of your mana dorks. And Lava Dart, which does the same thing. And, and as a result, elves has been really struggling in the meta since then. And in the past, black-green elves decks couldn't really win on turn three. Even with the nut draw, you might have like a virtual kill, but you would literally need to flood the board and cast the Shaman of the Pack, maybe sometimes cast double Shaman of the Pack. So if you didn't have enough elves or your mana dorks were picked off every turn or an opponent resolved a Plague Engineer, it would be like impossible to just stabilize and recover at that point. But by adding these combo finishes that you can now threaten on turn three, I feel like this tribal deck can now race a Plague Engineer if you're on the play or potentially win by casting two spells on the same turn or using one of those elves that has two power to enable the mana engine instead of counting on a wide board. Also, like I said, no one remembers that Zerda has an activated ability. So even though it's a must kill, sometimes they just don't kill it. Sometimes, and perhaps not incorrectly, they kill a mana dork because that's like what you need to keep tapping for the combo. But, you know, if you got multiple removal spells and you let a Zerda live, that might just mean game over because a lot of these combos can be activated at an instant speed in response to someone's removal spell. Also, the deck doesn't even need Zerda to rely on combo kills. Like, Leyline of Abundance is fantastic. Azuri plus Devoted Druids is fantastic. Batter Skull, why not? So it's got all these things going for it. I've been, I've been talking this deck up. I got to be fair and balanced. There are some weaknesses to it, right? And like I said, it's a creature-based combo deck. And I think as a result, it struggles from a lot of the same things that creature-based combo decks have in the past. Like, Burn is really popular right now. Killing a Mana Dork every turn or or using a burn spell to kill your Zerda can be pretty backbreaking. You'll probably never recover. Mm -hmm. Mid-range being around, like all these Thoughtseize decks, being able to pick out your combo pieces or you know find a way to deal with like your maybe one copy of Umbral Mantle could be a pretty huge setback. It also doesn't have the type of redundancy that you'll sometimes see in devoted Druid combo decks because while you have 20 mana dorks, and you always have Zerda in your hand. Maybe finding that like artifact you need to seal the deal. If you don't have a Stoneforge Mystic, there's just like no way to fetch it up, right? It's not running Eladami's Call. It's not running um, Finale of Devastation, right? Yeah. So some of the combo pieces don't go together, even though there are so many combos in here. It's not like you get, you know, there's twelve in column A and twelve in column B, and any of those go together. It's kind of just like. Yeah, yeah, but like, even if you don't find the combo pieces and you just have a bunch of mana dorks and an archdruid and Azuri... You can do a lot. Then you can, in theory, still play beatdown. Especially if you cast a Zerda, then those Azuri activations are really cheap. So even if the combo isn't a, a, a I win button, sometimes it's just making like the other good cards in your deck more efficient. Yeah. 
I also think one of the struggles for this deck is that Zerda actually exemplifies where the companion clause is a deck building restriction and a limitation because having a white based deck that can't run something like rest in peace or stony silence does feel like a setback you have to count on like relic of progenitus and tormod script as some of your graveyard hate cards and my personal opinion like if you can run white you should run rest in peace especially in a deck that doesn't care about your graveyard at all relic not quite as good but but you got to do it unfortunately you got to do it david yeah so that's how I feel. Like this deck is, I think, fantastic. Maybe if mid range dies down a little bit, maybe if burn dies down a little bit, I think this deck can like seriously be page one of the modern archetype on MTG Goldfish. Like I can see this like stealing tournaments down the line just because like the consistency of these combo finishes, like if you're not winning on turn three, it's it's easier to win on turn four. Um, so yeah, this is a sleeve. Like if companions stick around, I think Zerda making activated abilities really powerful. Activated abilities cheaper is just a card to keep an eye on in general. And the fact that she has this killer synergy with Umbral Mantle and Mana Dorks, which we're already seeing tons of play in modern, like whether it was Burn of Paradise, whether it was Noble Hierarch, what have you. The opportunity cost in the right deck doesn't seem that low either. Stand with the only sleeve. Sleeve plus. The only sleeve. Sleeve plus, baby. Elves is back. I'm loving it. So it's not a double sleeve. Not yet. Well, double sleeve means it's so good that it's bad. And I think it'd be a double sleeve if they had like turn two kills. And I just, I literally don't think it does. Yeah. Um, this is awesome. I love this list. Yeah. Yeah. And I think this is a deck that Shane would like to play. Shane used to love like the creature combo decks. And this does that. And it's fun sometimes having to like kind of sit there and figure out your line and not like how you're going to arrange your pieces to execute that turn three kill feels super rewarding as well. It it's it's still a lot of clicking, but it's only like ten clicks. Right. After about ten clicks, you're done. You can stop clicking. You can you can hit okay. So yeah, I loved it. What can I say? I'm in love. In love with your first love. Elves are back. This is, I think, my first time playing a green-white deck and, like, really enjoying it. I, I, yeah, maybe I played, like, Devoted Devastation for Science before as yeah. well. But, like, that was just kind of a pill I had to swallow. This, I seriously considered running this deck in our Slack league mm-hmm. just because, like, my early experiences with it were so strong. I did two leagues with it, loved it. I have to stop. Get me out of here. <laughs> I'm just going to gush all day. All right. It's a sleeve from Stan on Zerta Elves. Nice. I gave a Believe... Taluris Death Shadow, which is maybe a little tempered, just because I think there's better Luris decks. And Shane gave a believe minus. Yeah, yeah, believe, believe minus, believe minus with potential upside. So last week, I, I tried to be a little bit measured in my slight negativity towards companions. How are you all feeling about companions with another week under our belts and a lot more decks and a lot more games played uh, with and against companion decks? David. Stan. Shane. Oh, that's me. Stan. <laughs> Listen, anyone who follows me on Twitter knows that... At Medium Gallery. Knows that I have not been a critic of Companion. And I think part of that is twofold. Part of that is twofold. A very common saying. <laughs> part of that is the fact that, like, Modern is really fun right now because we got an injection of new cards. Just, like, blanket statement... 
prior to Elob, it was feeling a little stale. A lot of Titan, a lot of blue-green, a lot of like Ponza even. And now we had this massive change and the the format is just like practically unrecognizable. Magic is practically unrecognizable. And I feel like it's a really exciting yeah. time to be playing this game. And Magic has been good about that, right? Like keeping things exciting by any means necessary. I got to say, Stan, this is totally what I think right now too. Cool. I've had a ton of fun playing modern leagues, playing random decks, seeing decks that are in the dumps. Um, yeah, I can co-sign with that statement. Can I keep going just briefly? I, I want I, you to, yeah, do it. Yeah, I don't want to absorb the conversation, but I've, I've been thinking about my feelings a lot. And like, that's good, that's healthy. It, I, I wonder if Companion would be as big of an issue within the community if Luris just wasn't one of them. It would be. Because it's a fundamental way to the game that the game's sort of changed in the way that the decks are expected to be built. So I think I think that's I think that would be there would be there would be a response in that way. Sure. I, I mean I think your your reaction there kind of rests on the notion that change might be bad. And I, I'm kind of resting on the notion that change might not be bad. Sure. And just kind of like this inevitable cycle of this dynamic game that prints new cards every three months. I also think that the discourse around companions is homogenized by the fact that people can only play online and these high-level tournaments are just kind of like the only way people can kind of see this meta evolve. And what happens is we don't have the LGS to offset some of the high-level competitive discourse. Because like even when Oko was a card, even when Phoenix or Faithless Looting were cards, like we could still go to the LGS and sometimes play elf guy or play burn guy or play tron guy or gal and you know like now we don't really have that and we're just kind of in this environment where if you're on mtgo you're very likely to be playing against someone who can rent any deck or if you're on arena you're playing against someone who's got wild cards and can access practically any card so there's less escape from this reality and likewise less reason not to play with these potentially new busted things uh, Stan, I think you have been speaking, though, to the ease at which you can acquire these cards. You, you grab one 20-buck Luris, you know, in, in the world where we're purchasing Paper Magic cards, and you have yourself Luris Burn. Yeah. You, have to, you don't have to change anything else. I mean... I love that. Well, that's, that's, that's... I think that would be... I think we would be seeing this at the LGS, is what I'm saying. I don't think that people would be, like, you know, r- running out old Burn when they could just drop... You know, money on a new Luris or something like that. I don't think they'd be running SRAM auras without Luris or things like that. So I think that we would be seeing them because of the ease at which one can acquire these cards. I I, I like your positivity, Stan, because I think that it's if if the if the game is going to change in some fashion, we either have to accept it or complain incessantly. <laughs> There's no middle ground, and we choose the latter. Shane, yeah, Shane's here to tell you about option two. No, no, I don't. I don't think. <laughs> um, here's here's my. I want to run this by you though. Okay, y'all, is what is the long term plan here for for Watsi for the game? Because let, let's let's avoid the immediate near term issues of like. Um, sim- like samey samey type stuff of boredom of potential power level issues with Luris. I want to talk a little bit about long term. Like, what's what are the the ways in which they can keep making companions that are interesting 
to build around and offer um, reasons to run the cards at the same time. So, so we have 10 here, and they've already hit even cards, odd cards, creature types, deck size, color requirements, CMC restrictions above and below. What are they? What are they going to do next? Like, I mean, I, I mean, we could we could iterate on this and get really down to like nitty gritty aspects. Like, everything has to have flash, which would be insane, right? But there's there's all sorts of stuff that you could get to, but they're they're immediately hitting on the 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 main things that one would brainstorm when doing companions, and so anything else would likely be so restrictive or a silly enough restriction that it would push them out of competitive playing. I think probably. So what's the long-term goal here? Like, are we going to see just the, the huge players in the game show up and do something? Um, do you think Watsy has a long-term plan to keep making companions? If not, are we just going to have, like, Luris be amazing for X number of months until maybe it's so good and ubiquitous it gets banned? I'm curious what you guys think. I said a lot. Well, I, th- I think one thing I would say here is, okay, I have I have two questions. One, Shane, are you enjoying the games where you're playing as companions? Yes or no? You know what i I don't have any drastic changes about the way I feel about the game right now. Okay, nothing drastic. Perfect. <laughs> you're not running for office. God, I know. <laughs> I have no recollection of how I felt playing any of these mm. games. I plead the fifth. I mean, I I I don't love the must answer threat that you can get on curve at any time. Okay. And then the other thing I would say is I think the the so I do think there's design space issues with companions. I think that you are I think it's easier to use the same restrictions over and over again though that have different payoffs that would give you uh different incentives to build a deck a certain way, right? You yeah. could have permanence be even or odd on a different companion. It's not necessarily something that only Obash owns. Yeah. Like there's, you know, you give a different benefit. Like, so there's a bunch of these that could be evergreen. Um, here's, here's my take. You guys want my, my bottom line take. So Shane's like out long-term Stan is in long-term. Here's my take. Since I've been stuck here in quarantine or social distancing or stay at home or whatever, you know what I do every day? That's secret. It's, I before I go to bed, every, before I go, before I go to bed every day, I open a pint of Ben and Jerry's ice cream, and I have like a quarter of a, of my Ben and Jerry's ice cream. Okay. I don't have a whole one. I thought you were going to say I, thought, I, I, I open I open the I open the the Sam's Club multi pack. No, 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 no. And plow through. I have some Ben and Jerry's ice cream every night. What's your flavor? Every night, uh, Chubby Hubby, which is happening right here as I'm stuck. <laughs> I know in. you are, but what am I? Yeah, exactly. I'm not going to do that after after this is over, after I'm back out in the real world. I'm going to have to get back on Weight Watchers. I'm going to have to watch myself, but I'm enjoying it right now. And that's how I feel about Companions, is that this is like a fun moment where we get to experience modern in a different way. And I will get to a point where I don't want any more of this. And so I hope their plan is not that... Uh, magic is going to be this way forever. And I hope that I, there's a lot of chat about people being like, they're going to have companions in every set from now on. There are some tweets from people like Sam Black that really make me worried that there will be companions from now on. I don't really want that forever, but I am enjoying it right now. 
and maybe I'll enjoy it for the next six months. And then it'll come to a point where I'm like, all right, it's time for us to move on from this and go back to magic what it was or to be go on to whatever the next thing magic's going to be. But that's how I feel about it. Fun for now. It's going to get tired. So let's just enjoy it for now. And then let's all set up a time four months from now where we can really start complaining about it. And then we'll, then we'll try to get rid of them. Wow. Very fair and very reasonable. Mm-hmm. I am known for my tempered takes. I want to keep arguing, but like, Dave, you just kind of made me want to be nice to people. Instead. <laughs> How did I make you feel about ice cream? I want it. Yeah, I've got some watermelon popsicles. Might have to crack one open after this. Nice. Yeah, I guess we'll see what happens. You know, everyone's entitled to their opinion. And if they don't like playing with companions, I don't think there's anything I or Twitter can say to change your mind. But the reverse is true too. Like people keep dogging on it, but I find it really refreshing when I hear people say like, hey, this has been pretty fun lately. At least things have changed up a bit. Both things can be true. Yeah. It can be fun now and a bad idea long-term, but. Okay, so that's companion talk. We did it. We'll probably talk about them again next week and the week after and the week after that and the week after that. But right now we're going to take a quick break. And when we return, we have to eulogize a dear friend. You Google-logize? We're, we're, we're going to the funeral. Yeah. So put on some black. More of a wake. Stay with us. So Wizards announced today that... Planeswalker points are officially going away, and DCI numbers will no longer be recognized or required to play in Magic events. And I guess from now on, you only need like your Wizards Arena account to register for events. Yeah, I don't think that means you have to play Arena, but as long as you have an account, you can use that account to register for events at like the LGS or GPs or whatever. Yeah, they're using one unified sign-in for everything is their idea. For that. Yeah, your, your single sign-on. Yep. And, and we're recording this on Monday, the day the news was released. There has been a bit of a public reaction to some of the nuances for what they're doing with a lot of that historic data tied to our Planeswalker points. What they're not doing with it. Sure. Yeah. And, and the reason I'm bringing this up is only that like part of me thinks we might see a revision to their plan even by the time this episode comes out. Yeah. That would be unlike, unlike Wizards to roll things back in some way. <laughs> Part of me thinks that might be the case, but let's just take them at, at their face value today with this DCI announcement. Do either of you have reactions? David? Can I give my reaction, please? <laughs> yeah, you probably have the smallest DCI number. Yes, so I have a, I got my DCI number in 1996 for being part of a tournament program that Wizards had called Arena. Believe it or not, they've been using that name forever. It was a book that they had. It was a tournament program that they had. Uh, my DCI number is five digits or six digits, not five digits, six digits. It's five. So, yeah, it starts with a five. <laughs> and um, I, I feel sad about that fact. I understand why they're getting rid of it. I think that it's, you know, Stan and I were talking about this in chat, and I think some people don't even realize that DCI numbers used to have ELO ratings attached to them. They gave people 
qualifications for things like high-level tournaments. I don't think they gave Pro Tour qualifications, but other types of tournaments based on your ELO rating attached to your DCI. They changed that. That's when they introduced Planeswalker points where they made it more about you know participation as opposed to ELO grinding, like you can still do on Magic Online if you want to. Um, it's gone through a lot of evolutions, and I think it's gotten to a point where now when they decided they weren't going to hand out buys based on participation anymore in GPs, that they were just kind of like, why do we have this anymore? I think it's a good question. But, you know, they they had this tournament system in place for, you know, I think the DCI was 1994, maybe. So it's been 26 years. Uh, it's sad to yeah. see it go. And, um, but I understand why. And so if the technology doesn't mean much to them, then I will consign 536569 to the abyss and say goodbye, old friend. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm less concerned about the sort of way they want people to be identified changing and more just how how dismissive they were in the communication, honestly, about the historical record attached to it. Um, Lee, uh, Lee, your last name is escaping me, I apologize. McLeod? Yeah, Lee McLeod, I believe. Um, so they had a really good take, which was, if the NBA suddenly changed the way they recorded historical stats, why would they also like throw away all the old stats. And that's kind of effectively what uh, Wizards is doing. They're just like, no, we're not going to save the data. No, it's not going to be rolled into your new ID. Uh, deal with it, essentially. And it's just kind of, especially with, with, there's it captures every round of magic I've played under my DCI number. And some people have you know, a hundred times the number of rounds played than I have over the the years of their career. And it's just, it's just a little sad to see that historical record go as much of a data guy as I am seeing all that data just thrown away and people immediately asking, well, how do, how do I save this? Can I, how do I export this data? How do I put it somewhere where I can analyze it later? Because I don't want it to go away. That's my gameplay history. Yeah. I mean, again, I have records of an FNM I played in like 1995 or 1996 that I can just look up and see my friends I played with in high school, you know? Yeah. Like I can, I can look at who I played the most, like, you know, like uh, my, my buddy in Chicago who I was like my nemesis. I always ran into him at like a local event or the, the person I play the most at my LGS here. And I can see what our one V one matchup is over the last you know, two years that I've lived here. And it's just, it's cool to have all that. And I know we'll probably have something like that under the new system, but why get rid of the old data? It can't be that hard. It's just matchups. <laughs> it's just matchup data. You have professional data manipulation people, I hope. Run the simulations. Never underestimate the complexity of match opponent win percentage rating. <laughs> I still don't. I, I mean, I don't have a lot to say on the topic. I agree with both of you. It's said that all the historical data is gone. It kind of makes sense if this data and, and technology is outdated. Like, what are you going to do? I'm picking my battles, and this is not what I'm going to fight in, but... It would be nice if it stuck around. Maybe in the future I'd want to revisit that stuff, but yeah, it is what it is. Yeah, so export your data. There's a lot of ways to do so. You know, just as, from saving the HTML page to you know, Magic Stats. I think is a web page that just like you just cut and paste all your stuff, and and it keeps it for you. I guess I'll have to get my DCI number tattoo covered up. Well, that's that doesn't seem like a joke, Dave. So I'm not laughing. <laughs> All right, that wraps up this week's show. Thanks, everybody, for joining us. We, we went a little long, but 
it was fun. I think it was worth it. If you haven't yet, make sure you subscribe to our podcast so you get the latest episodes as soon as they come out. And if you use Apple Podcasts, please leave us a rating and review. If you'd like to submit a question to the podcast or pick our brain on something in Modern or Pioneer, you can tweet us at the dive down, all one word, or email thedivedown at gmail.com. If you'd like to support the show, you can join our Patreon. Find that at patreon.com slash thedivedown for as low as a dollar an episode. You can join us in the Slack channel, less than the price of a cup of coffee. Also, shout out to Manitraders for sponsoring the Dive Down. You can sign up for Manitraders using promo code the Dive Down, all one word. Get 15% off your first three months of renting Magic Online cards. As always, special thanks to the bands Nowhere and Space Blood for letting us use their music. And until next week, get out there and crack more bobbles. Making your way in modern today takes everything you got. Getting a breakdown on PTQ sure would mean a lot. Wouldn't you like to get a buy? Sometimes you want to go where everybody plays your game. That's not the theme song, is it? That's, that is the theme song. Like, man, I think Stan's just so off tune. No, he's not. I'm singing beautifully. Rotating ah. formats are so lame. Bum, bum, bum. You want to be where you can see how the meta is going to change. You want to be where everybody, everybody plays, plays your, your game. This is definitely getting cut. <laughs> oh, yeah. 100%. <laughs>